Welcome to a new episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you for being part of the show, and thank you for helping to promote the show. And this is a show that is not for the clowns, creeps, crooks, and cranks of society. This is not a show for tennis balls who float down the gutter of life. No, this is a show for the happy warriors. Now, who are the happy warriors? Well, I can't do better than to go back to the originator of the phrase, the English poet William Wordsworth, who starts his poem by saying, Who is the happy warrior? Who is he that every man in arms should wish to be? It is the generous spirit, and he carries on talking about that. And finally, the closing of the poem is, and he finds comfort in himself and in his cause. And while the mortal mist is gathering, draws his breath in confidence of heaven's applause, this is the happy warrior, this is he, that every man in arms should wish to be. And... uh, and and that just resonates with me because that that really is who I try to be and uh, how uh, Susan and I try to make our children grow to be. Um, you know, one of the things we taught our children to memorize when, when they were little was William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus. It's a short poem, by the way. If you don't know it, it's really worthwhile taking a look at. You, you know, you might say you're not big into poetry, and I'm not big into poetry, but every now and then um, there are people, and we call them poets, who have captured the ability to convey intense emotion with an absolute minimum of words. And uh, William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus ends with the words, and I mean, this is so befitting a happy warrior, right? Here are the words. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. How good is that? Because we're not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. And that's why I regard it as an honor to serve you, every one of you listeners, to this Rabbi Daniel Appen show, because we're all happy warriors. Look, to live productively, there is no alternative. You have to fight every day. You have to fight against the forces of entropy, if nothing else. Uh, You fight to maintain your possessions, your car, your home, your garden. Whatever you have has a tendency towards to basically to chaos and to falling apart. Um, That's what that's what entropy is. You have to fight to build your family and maintain your family and keep your family the way you want it. Your finances take constant effort. Uh, your body, to keep your body healthy. There are things you should do, the things you shouldn't do. Your business, your profession, your career. Look, the reality is that something we discovered in the first two verses of Genesis is that God created a world in which chaos and disorder rules. That's all. It just does. And uh, I may as well tell you about my scrolling through scripture program, uh, which is uh, on 
line at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. You look for an online course called Scrolling Through Scripture, and uh, it's a uh, it's, it's about 10 hours of instruction on the first 34 verses of Genesis. And the, the second verse speaks about something called tohu bohu, and that is the heads up that God tells us, hey, this is a world in which, left alone, things deteriorate. And I put you there to work the garden, which is a phrase that shows up a little bit later. So life is a fight, and that is a good thing. Look, for each and every one of us, to stop fighting, to stop trying to develop, to stop trying to grow, to stop trying to better ourselves, to stop to stop seeking to strive, uh, well, there's a word for that. It's called dying. And the reason I call you not just warriors, but happy warriors, is because to throw yourself into the fight for eight or ten hours a day, six days a week, that's one thing, and it's and it's no little thing. But to do all that with a debonair smile on your face and presenting a happy mood to the people you live with and the people you work with, and to walk with a jaunty pace to your stride, to do all that while generating an irrepressible surge of gratitude and happiness welling up in your soul, well, that means, yes, you are spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming, devoted to your faith, your families, your finances, your friends, and yes, your fitness, knowing that you can triumph over those who both intentionally and unknowingly try to obstruct you. They handicap you. They try to get in the way. They try to resist, knowingly or unknowingly. And in so doing, they promote a dark abyss of what I call satanic secular socialism. And all the other destructive and evil social pathologies out there, you're constantly fighting to protect yourself and your family, your livelihood, your business, your finances. All of these parts of your life need constant effort. There is no such thing as retirement. There is no such thing as stopping the struggle because to stop the struggle is, well, yeah, it is to die. That's really exactly what it is. Now, you know, sadly for people who live in America, but not only for them, because America has been a force for good in the world, largely. And it's held up a vision of freedom, of liberty, a freedom of financial potential, a, a, a picture of potential in the financial area. Uh, American culture, for better or for worse, has spread widely. But there is really no good news in America's decline. Uh, if anybody, and I'm not saying there aren't people like that, I'd, I'd say a good part of America's population uh, sees happiness in America's decline is confident that America's decline is good for the world. Uh, former President Obama was someone in that mold. Uh, absolutely, there are people like that. It's, uh, it's a wrong view. 
And uh, as America loses influence in the world and nature abhors a vacuum, it's not as if the influence of the world will be taken over by the United Nations. Or, I mean, that's a preposterous and stupid notion. Of course not. Uh, nature does abhor a vacuum, and as America's leadership role shrinks and continues shrinking, uh, that role is going to be taken over, as it now appears, by China. And by the time foolish people finally realize that, you know, this wasn't a great idea, replacing American hegemony in the world with Chinese hegemony, eh, not really such a smart idea. Well, by the time they say that, unfortunately, it will be way, way too late. In what ways are things going down? Well, this is not news to, <clears throat> to regular listeners of this show, because I've been talking for a long time about the fact that from the early 1960s, things in America have been deteriorating rapidly. Uh, and not just in ways that make living in America much, <clears throat> much more expensive than it used to be, and that's true, <clears throat> because... <clears throat> It was true that a middle-class family could live an enviable lifestyle in America on the earnings of one person. <clears throat> it is true also that uh, uh, life in America has become more vulgar. The kind of things that anybody could see on their phone or on the on the um, on satellite radio, listen to, um, are things that would have made a hardened convict blush in 1950. And so, yes, it's become indescribably more vulgar. It's become more dangerous. It is, if, you, um, if you are at all aware of the number of assaults that go on in America on a regular daily basis, and the only reason the murder rate isn't even higher than it is is through the miraculous progress of emergency medical technology. But uh, many of the people who get shot only a few years ago would have died. And today uh, they are got to a trauma center very rapidly and, uh, and they're worked on. But uh, the, the rise in the danger on the streets of America, there's no question about that compared to, uh, you know, before the early 60s. And so, yeah, these things are bad. But not only do they reduce the uh, quality of life for Americans, but what's more important is that they impact the entire world. And so regardless of where you live now or where you might be living in six months' time, it doesn't matter. The world is changing. And what we should talk about are what are the things that you should be doing in order to position yourself as best you possibly can for those developing changes. The, the main four areas in which we find that things have changed in America um, are educational standards. And by the way, it's, it, four is just my way of dividing it. I, I'm sure there are plenty other ways of categorizing it. But um, 
educational standards have plummeted. In other words, um, America's ability to to graduate people who can function in a modern economy. I'm not talking about... <clears throat> pardon me, I don't know what's the matter with me. I, I'm not talking about graduate degrees in computer science. I'm talking about people coming out of school, coming out of 12th grade with an ability to read, not watch television, but an ability to read, an ability to write, and an ability to do arithmetic, all right, at, at, a, at a reasonable level. I'm not saying it has to be calculus, but to certainly have the basics, my goodness, to understand what degrees are and how many degrees in a circle and what are the three internal angles of a triangle add up to and why is that? And uh, basic algebra to know that a negative number cannot have a square root, right? For, for phrases like that to be meaningful to you. Now, again, going back, and I, I've checked textbooks on this, by the way, going back to the 1950s, everything I've spoken about was understood by the eighth or ninth grade. And now the overwhelming majority of people coming out of high school don't have these abilities at the 12th grade. So these losses are, are tremendously important. Uh, American scores on the Scholastic Aptitude Test actually peaked in 1964. And since then, We've been going down, 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 completely steadily. There again, you know, it's just again another pointer to the early 60s as when the uh, the graph began dropping of, of basically the graph for the good of America. And uh, uh, the decline, particularly in science and math skills, has accelerated dramatically since 2010 um, until now, 2021, um, we are uh, lower than the 40th of 70 countries in math and lower than 30th in science. That's pretty amazing. Looking at 70 countries, America is lower than number 40 and in math and lower than number 30 in science. That's not bad. <laughs> no, it's not bad. It's horrifying. It's unbelievable. And so uh, this, again, in a relatively short period of time, we were literally at the top of the list in 1964, on top, and now all the way down. And you know what makes it uh, so irritating is that none of these 70 countries spend more public money on education per child than America, right? None of us, no, none of these countries around the world spend more on education by the way, that's got absolutely nothing to do with the fact that in this year alone, 2021, San Francisco schools are spending over a million dollars to change the names of 44 schools in the San Francisco School District um, because they honor individuals who have been found wanting under the new morality. So, uh, 
by so schools in San Francisco named after George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Paul Revere, all losing their names. I shudder to think who they're going to be named after, but not even not even counting that million dollars uh, that's being spent in San Francisco, America spends more per child on education than any of the other 70 countries, and we're still number f- past number 40. We're lower than 40 in math and lower than 30 in science. So uh, how, can this, how can this be good news? And of course, what we do is we just lower the standards. So now graduation does not require any of those things. But then, obviously, what happens is that um, those people graduate. They are not ready to be employed. And so the government throws onto private industry the task of fulfilling its own unmet promises. And so now there are for-profit companies that supply basic education to new recruits in American business and industry. So if you're running a, a factory and you have some numerically controlled tools, machine tools, and uh, you expect your uh, people to be able to use a spreadsheet and uh, to have basic um, calculating ability, uh, you're stuck because you need to hire people, but you can't get people who have those abilities, let alone the softer skills of punctuality and resilience and determination, not even worrying about those things. So what do you do? You have to spend money bringing in people to hold classes during paid time. So you are paying your employee however many dollars an hour it is, and you're paying the trainer to be coming in, and you have to do that because the person you've hired out of high school is essentially unemployable. <laughs> so this is, this is a very big problem. And for those that go to college, well, obviously, they've just had to lower the standards at colleges because colleges now have to do what was pre- previously done in four years of high school, now gets done in four years of college. And so, not surprisingly, it is very difficult to see a way for America to retain any position of eminence in science, in finance. I mean, you can't, it's, it's mind-numbing, right? You can't expect anybody to function in the STEM area, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Nobody can, can work in those areas with the kind of skills that most of them graduate from high school out and to talk about a career in accounting, business, finance, forget about it. Now, uh, I've often spoken about the fact that we are really not one nation, but two nations. And on my website, you'll find, that's rabbidaniellappin.com, you will find one of our books is called America's Real War. And uh, what America's Real War explains and it, it, it was already very visible when I wrote the book a few years ago. It's even more visible now. And that is that we, uh, we are no longer one nation under God. We're actually two separate nations occupying the same piece of real estate. And in many ways, it's reminiscent of the mid-19th century when the issue was resolved by a bloody, terrible civil war. 
nobody expects the same kind of outcome. But certainly some kind of resolution necessary, right? For how long can people who disagree so fundamentally occupy the same land? It is an issue. Does this mean gradual dissolution of the Union, secession by various states? You know, who can tell? There, there is no way to foresee uh, things. There's no way, you know, last, uh, last January or, uh, or, or December 2019, right, nobody was imagining a coronavirus Nobody was certainly imagining a disproportionate government reaction, the likes of which was not even applied during the 1918 flu epidemic. Nobody expected any of these things, but still, things change. So, obviously, no predictions, but the important thing to remember is we're not one nation. And all of this, you know, if you're listening to me in Ghana or you're listening to me in, uh, in India or you're listening, we've got a lot of listeners in Australia and uh, listeners in Canada, wherever you are, these are things that impact you as well. Because firstly, many of the countries around the world are following rapidly in the rather gloomy footsteps of the United States of America. Number one, your country may well be following in the same footsteps. For instance, uh, New Zealand, certainly following in the same footsteps. Uh, which is which is so disturbing because for many many years, going back to the Cold War and people's fear of Russian military missiles, back in the day they used to say, "Oh well, we must move to New Zealand. We'll be safe in New Zealand." Well, that's no longer the case, and so uh, wherever you live, your country is probably either following or perhaps even leading down the same path. And secondly, with American influence in the world giving way to Chinese dominance in the world, well, this will impact your life wherever you are as well. And so the only question is, how do you best prepare and how do you cope for it? But understand that there are two nations in America. They are best characterized by me giving you as an example uh, two different women. And I ask you to visualize these two different women. These two women are both mothers of seven children, but that is where the resemblance ends, okay? One mother is, let's, let's say she is a uh, devoted Catholic lady, she and her husband have been stably married for many years, and they have eight children. And every one of those children is raised beautifully, and those children respect their mother and they respect their father, and those children are flourishing in their schoolwork. I don't know, in my example, are they at a neighborhood public school, a GIC, a government indoctrination camp? Um, are they at a private parochial school, maybe a Catholic school? Are the children homeschooled? Uh, I don't know. But one thing I know is those children are mastering um, the, the rudiments of education in a very real and serious way. They're doing well. 
and they're um, they're all fed. None of them are on their family's not on any kind of public assistance. The family takes care of itself, and um, they get together with their extended family on holidays and Thanksgiving and so on. And uh, these children are all getting ready to think about their own careers and about getting married and building their own families. And um, remember that stable traditional families make the best citizens. And so this is one woman. You look at this woman and you look at her and her eight children and her husband and watch them one dinner time. And, and you'll be impressed with what goes on around the dinner table. There's no television. There's no radio blaring. Uh, nobody's watching YouTube. No, they're just co- talking and conversing. And now I have to take you to the other woman. This other woman is a woman who's also a mother of eight children. Now, in her case, the, each child was fathered by a different man. And none of those eight men are around or play any role in the lives of their children or in the lives of this woman. Um, She is a single mom, and she is trying her best to cope with raising these children, very often with the help of her mother, the grandmother. And uh, But television plays a huge role in the lives of these children. They, uh, they, They are sat down in front of the TV for a lot of the time. They also um, hear very little in the wor- in the way of vocabulary because nobody's reading to them and nobody's communicating with them in terms of effective language usage. Uh, they also witness um, dysfunctionality. They witness criminality. They witness violence. And these eight children are going to grow up And by all accounts, by certainly every statistic we have from law enforcement and from the social sciences, these children will grow up and to replicate the way in which they were raised in exactly the same way that the earlier family I described are in all probability going to raise eight children who are going to in turn each create eight lovely families. In the same way, these eight children are going to recreate and replicate pretty much the way they grew up. Perfectly normal, perfectly natural. That's what you'd expect to happen, and that is exactly what is likely to happen. And uh, these children, uh, particularly the males among the eight children, have a very high likelihood of interacting with the um, criminal justice authorities. Now, please note, I don't know what you're visualizing in your mind, but I'd rather you keep this at an abstract level, because I want you to note that I have absolutely and meticulously not spoken about skin color because it has nothing to do with skin color. It has everything to do with culture. And the proof of this is that this culture of dysfunctionality and self-destructiveness, drugs, crime, no work, um, sexual concupiscence, premature sexualization of children, all of this is found among people in the United Kingdom with white skins. And it's found among people in in, uh, Norway who are Muslims, 
whatever color skin they've got. So it's nothing to do with skin color, nothing at all, in spite of the obsessive preoccupation that the culture has at the moment with race. Every single thing is racial. No, this I'm talking about culture, and it's two separate societies. You've got the society in America who are, if you like, represented by the uh, Catholic family with eight children. And then you've got another part of America that is represented by the unmarried woman with eight children. And these two Americas have very little to do with one another. The children of the Catholic lady, well, those children are going to graduate school knowing their geometry and their algebra. They're going to know their arithmetic. They're going to know how to read. They will read. They'll know how to write effectively. It's pretty clear they will. It's also equally clear that the eight children of the other lady will not. And it's only a question of culture. The Catholic lady are religious the um, the lady the other lady is secular the catholic lady venerates marriage the other lady does not the catholic lady, the, the one i'm calling the catholic lady but she could also be uh, evangelical she could be a latter day saint she could be jewish it doesn't make any difference the the thing is there's a shared culture there it's a culture that venerates marriage uh, the other part of America does not venerate marriage. This part of America says sex belongs in marriage. It's not for uh, young single people to disport themselves with. Uh, it's destructive in its power. And the uh, other lady doesn't agree with that. The, uh, the Catholic family, they believe that work is noble, dignified, and liberating. That is not true for the other family. And this family could be living in the United Kingdom, and they could be living in Norway, they could be living in Paris. Uh, it is a culture that is a culture that is growing in expanse today, with more and more people buying into it and becoming part of that cultural belief. It's a cultural belief that dominates all of American television entertainment today. And so, Obviously, it's no surprise that it is spreading widely and dramatically. What do you expect? And so when we speak about the average, you know, that America is at the f lower than the 40th level of 70 nations on high school math achievement, and we're lower than 30 out of the 70 nations on science achievement, uh, that's not all of America. That's half of America. That's the half of America represented by the woman with eight children, each of whom had a different father. But the part of America represented by the family with eight children who are doing very well in school. And so if we only measured that part of America, which obviously is impossible, but if we only measured that part of America we would probably be in the top five in math, in science, easily within the top five because there is a cultural commitment to education and learning. 
And here's something else. There's a cultural commitment to recognizing that life isn't supposed to be easy and life isn't supposed to be fun and life isn't supposed to be fair. I'm sorry. (laughs) Doesn't mean they're not fun moments. Doesn't mean they're not all times should be happy. We're happy warriors. But that it should necessarily conform to our view of what means fair or should conform to what we think is fun. Uh, No. Or that it should be easy and that the only reason it's not easy is because of the color of my skin or the shape of my nose or the or the uh, lack of symmetry to my face. No, nobody has it easy. If you want to progress, if you want to grow, if you want to develop, if you want to improve, you want to better yourself, you want to get somewhere. Yeah, it's not easy. And so that family is raised, the father and the mother raise their children to respect education, to respect effort, not to expect things to be easy, to enjoy and revel in the struggle, to essentially be happy warriors. How how are the children raised on the other side? Well, they're not even actually raised. They just sort of fall into the world and just find their way as best they can and uh, some some of these mothers are doing their best others are negligent that's just the reality that that's what you know what it's hard for a one person to raise children it's just plain hard and if you don't have a culture shaping a community around you then it's almost impossible no it's not almost it is quite impossible and so it's no surprise two separate Americas, taken as a whole, we're at, you know, lower than the 40th nation in math, lower than the 30th nation in science. If you only took the part of America that is shaped by Judeo-Christian Bible-based culture, then we would be in the top one, two, three, four. And if we only took the other part of America, it would be far lower than 40 and 30. It would probably be down at 68 or 67 out of 70. Seriously, just just ask yourself, you know, what a 15-year-old child tragically brought up in that environment I was describing, what chance does that child have? What does he know? He's virtually illiterate and mathematically completely illiterate. What chance does he have, especially in a modern world and a modern economy. Not much. And so this remains a huge problem in America. And because there is such a deep-seated hatred for the Judeo-Christian Bible-based culture that built Western civilization and that brought about the miracle of modern America, since there is so much hatred towards that biblical culture, They are completely opposed to the idea of attributing these differences in performance in America to culture. And so that is why we have this obsession with race. Well, it has to be racism that explains the bad performance. What about all the huge number of white children who also have shockingly bad performance because they too are raised in fatherless households, in dysfunctional environments, in communities with absolutely no respect whatsoever for education or for values or for effort. 
right? There was a, a wonderful book, Hillbilly Elegy, that made the point and showed and proved beyond a shadow of a doubt, right? It isn't racial, but the culture and the government has to make it racial because the alternative is saying to people, folks, let's realize now that we made a real mistake throwing religion out because that was when the country began going downhill. That was the beginning of it all because Judeo-Christian Bible-based culture emphasizes respect for parents, emphasizes family structure, family unity, emphasizes education, emphasizes willpower and self-discipline, all the qualities so necessary and yet so lacking in half of America today. That's the problem. And so it's a real tragedy that instead of saying, hey, we have a cultural crisis, the, the, uh, the country is much happier saying we have a racial crisis, and it's all a big lie. We don't have a racial crisis. We have a cultural crisis. How do I know that? Because before COVID, I used to speak very often at African-American churches, black churches, where the um, overwhelming majority of people uh, were of African-American descent. Now, it's interesting that those churches were invariably very, very integrated as well. They had many uh, interracial couples. And uh, look, these, these were wonderful. Every, everyone I spoke at was an absolute pleasure. Um, the, the pastors in, in most, case, most of these cases, not all, but in most of these cases, the pastors themselves had black skins, as if that matters. And, um, and the churches were successful, and the, uh, the people I spoke to had the right culture. Their, many of their children were in private school. Many of their children were being homeschooled. Many of these parents of African-American heritage rejected the gigs in their neighborhood. They would have nothing to do with the public schools in their neighborhood because they felt that not only were they, would they not educate their children, but worse than that, they would, um, they would uh, let their children mix with uh, an element that would undermine everything they were trying to do with their children. And so, friends, I'm very fortunate because I, at least prior to COVID, I get to see a whole huge, beautiful cross-section of the United States of America. Uh, in a typical year, I would speak in at least 30 different churches, right, not counting speeches I did for business organizations or uh, or synagogues. I almost completely quit speaking for colleges a few years ago. Uh, it's just not worth it to me. I don't do it. Uh, it's not economically, financially worth it. And uh, it's not worth it because uh, it's a it's a lost cause. I, I do speak for students, um, but not for, in other words, for groups of students I speak for, but not for universities per se. Uh, there's an organization called YAF, Young American for Freedom. It's a wonderful organization. I speak for them quite often, and they are, are fighting a valiant, marvelous struggle um, to help solidify uh, college campuses and to provide a home 
for conservative college students who, who do not want to buy into the craziness of the campus. And so, uh, yeah, it's, um, this is what's happening in the uh, educational scheme of things. And um, uh, it's, as you can imagine, the, the consequences as time goes by are tremendously dangerous. Like, so what happens to a United States of America that is no longer turning out people who can read or write, let alone do mathematics? And what about an America that is split? And people say, oh, you know, President Trump was divisive and President Bush was divisive. President Obama, now, he was a saint. He wasn't divisive at all. Look, it's not presidents that make people divided from one another. It's culture. It's very simple. Um, this uh, Catholic mother I was telling you about, if you put her at a table at Starbucks Coffee and you put at the other side of the table the mom with the other eight children I spoke about and you bring them two double thin skinny mocha lattes and you say to them, please just enjoy a conversation. We, we just want to put a microphone there and we want to hear the sort of things you talk about. They don't have a whole lot to talk about. Now, some people are going, well, they could discuss their common motherhood. No, there is no commonality to their motherhood. Don't you understand? There is no shared experience. They have literally nothing to talk about. They are divided. That's the divisiveness right they don't they don't hate one another they don't dislike one another they they just have nothing in common there is no basis for communication there's nothing there they're not talking to each other they can't because it's very difficult to have meaningful communication with somebody with whom you have no shared values and that's that's really important to understand. So, the country is divided. It's, we need a president who's going to pull us together. Joe Biden, yay! Oh, fantastic! Oh, you know how foolish can people be to think that that is a reality? Oh, Joe Biden is president. So the two ladies I've been painting a picture of you for at the Starbucks table. Oh, Joe Biden is president. Now they can talk. Um, no, it's not how it works. The country is divided, and it's not divided economically. Please know that. And I believe me, I, I've traveled, I've been around, I've seen people of every economic level, I've seen people of every skin color, and they are as committed to the Judeo-Christian biblical values that build family, that build finance, that build prosperity, that build stability on a societal level. They are as committed to those values as I am. It's nothing to do with financial bank accounts, got nothing to do with skin color. It has only to do with culture. It has to do with what your value system is. That's all it's about. Please believe me on this, I beg you, because it is, for people to understand this, is literally the only hope. How many times does it happen? How many times do you hear people saying, oh, um, uh, 
poor children don't get the same education as rich children. You hear people saying that all the time. And it's a lie. Let me explain to you why that is. It is true that the teachers' unions, for decades already, have been trying to promote the idea that the reason that American educational standards are down is because we're not spending enough money on education. There is no country in the world that spends more money per child on education than the United States. And as I told you, our results are way down the list. Past 40 in mathematics, past 30 out of 70 nations, uh, that's how bad we are. We're not getting anything close to the value for money because there is no correlation between money spent and education. If a wonderful teacher and a motivated student go and sit on a bench in the park for a few hours, real education happens right there without any money being spent at all. When a homeschooling mom sits down with three of her children and teaches them to read and how to do arithmetic, no money is being spent there other than the opportunity cost of the mother not being at work. That's serious, but it's but it's no it's nowhere near what the country and what school districts in the United States spend per child on education. No, it's nothing to do with the amount of money that's spent. Why is it then that poor children do not get the same education as as rich children? Well, because those poor children are poor because of a lack of values that don't esteem education. And so the same thing that makes their mother poor is the same thing that makes them underperform at school. It's all part of the same thing. And so we are looking at two results of one cause. You know, it's like somebody sleeps through an earthquake and he walks out of his house in the morning and he sees a water main broken and he sees a freeway overpass collapsed and he says, oh, I guess the water main broke and the water flooded and made the overpass collapse. And he's missing the point. There's another invisible thing that made both the water main break and the freeway overpass collapse. No, it's not that we wake up in the morning and say, oh, look, poor people aren't getting educated. No, the thing you're not noticing is that there, there, there is a terrible culture, a terrible, destructive, dysfunctional culture there that makes people poor and makes them uneducated. That's what's really going on there. And I, I think it's pretty important for that to be understood because wherever you are, wherever you are, you want to be in a place where, first of all, your children are educated, your family is educated, your friends are educated. That's really important. And if it means that you have to move to another state or another town or to another part of town, sometimes you have to move in order to make sure that you are around people who share your values. Because to be a lone voice espousing these solid, worthwhile values that bring success and happiness in an absolute desert where nobody else shares them. In fact, people 
everyone else adheres to a totally opposite and destructive set of values, you can't succeed. It's just too much of a challenge. Here's the second of the four areas that are falling apart, that are being destroyed within American civilization with very real-world effects on you, whether you live in North America or whether you live anywhere else in the world. As I said, the first one is a collapse of education, and um, that is not uniformly distributed throughout America's 330 million people. Uh, Some of those people are doing very well educationally, not many, but some are doing very well educationally, and they're also doing well financially, and both those results are the consequences of the same thing, which is they live their lives according to a solid set of cultural values. And then you've got a whole lot of other people who, uh, for whom education is simply not a reality. It's not because they're poor. It's not because they're in bad parts of town. It's not because their teeth are green or their hair is red or their skin is brown. It makes no difference. It's because of a rotten set of values. Um, you know, I mean, do you realize that uh, that Catholic mother of eight children, and as I said, she can be, doesn't have to be Catholic, but you get the idea. Um, her husband's at work every day. Her children grow up seeing a father who goes to work. And those children probably never, ever witness a criminal act, you know, all the way up to there till they become, I don't know, you know, 16 or something. Um, But the children growing up in that other household with that other mother I told you about without any of these values, do you realize that they grow up never seeing anybody take work seriously? Their mom may well be on welfare or on charity, same thing. Um, and um, they don't see anybody taking work seriously. What chance do they have? And since they are a growing part of the population of the United States, I have to extend the obvious question from them to the country. What chance does the country have? How dismal is this picture? But uh, the second, first one, education. The second one is communication. You know, wealth is brought about by communication. That's one of the reasons that there was a huge measurable burst in economic productivity every time there was a breakthrough in communication. The steamship, all of a sudden, fast movement between Europe and America, huge burst of economic productivity. Uh, The railways, a huge impact Um, The telegraph in 1844, the telephone at the beginning of the 20th century, radio early in the 20th century, television in the middle of the 20th century. Television went from 1950, 10% of households had it. It went in 10 years, that's all. No other invention penetrated America so quickly. In 10 years, from 1950 to 1960, the, the television went from 10% of households to 85% of households. So, uh, yeah, big, big difference. And again, as television spread, big increase in product. Anything that lets people connect more effectively with one another produces wealth. Well, the problem is 
that as there is a breakdown of education, the ability to communicate with one another drops. There are fewer people who can read, there are fewer people who can write, and there are fewer people who can communicate effectively verbally. Have you noticed? I think that one of the reasons for the proliferation of obscenity in everyday speech, including in entertainment today, is because so few people can express themselves and they look for extra words. Instead of finding a good adverb, they use a four-letter word. Instead of using a good uh, adjective, they use a four-letter word because they simply don't possess the vocabulary. So if people can't communicate effectively, there is going to be a noticeable impact on the economy. It takes a little while to ripple through, but uh, diminished communicative ability, which is a given, I'm afraid, has to have results of diminished economic output. It, it just absolutely has to happen. And um, it's not only that, but it's also the, the cultural clash. Since the country is divided into two seen so obviously and clearly in the elections. And again, it's not a racial distinction. It's a cultural distinction. It was exactly the same as the cultural distinction we saw in Great Britain in the battle over Brexit. Uh, it's exactly the same thing. It's two separate opposing cultures. There are rich and poor on both sides. There are black and white on both sides. There's male and female on both sides. There's there's people of every religion on both sides. The fundamental difference is the shared culture. Each side has its own culture. And, um, and there really is, uh, I think it's a very convenient way to depict the cultural distinction as the woman who, uh, together with her husband, are raising a religious family of eight children and a single mom who may be with her sister or her mother is raising eight children, each with a different father. These are real, real pictures. These are real people I'm describing. And there's huge numbers in the United States of each of these types of women. And uh, woman A, uh, woman A voted for Donald Trump. Doesn't, doesn't mean she loves everything about Donald Trump, but she realizes that in this cultural clash in the United States, she knows which side she's on, and she was on the Trump side, not the Biden side. The woman who, on the other hand, uh, has uh, eight children, each from a different father, she voted for Joe Biden. It's predictable. It's not, this is not a doubt. It's very clear because her entire cultural class believes in that worldview exemplified by the, the Biden administration. It's simple. It's two different schools, which again means that it's harder and harder to communicate effectively. Uh, you get to the point where even within companies, there are awkward circumstances and, uh, and there are special training classes, diversity classes, and so on, designed to make it possible for the company to work more smoothly, and their only effect is exactly the reverse. What they do is produce the opposite. 
uh, there is a mythology going around that diversity is good for business, right? All that is, is again, believing that the whole problem is skin color and race and that they have to bludgeon companies to hire certain types of people. It's simply not true. Companies will hire people of any color as long as they have the right culture. That's all. <laughs> it's, it's so clear and so obvious. And so the diminished communication is a, a problem. You need to be with people with whom you can communicate. Uh, the next thing is the diminished uh, support for the family. In other words, there is a growing war, if you like, family values. All right, now, the first thing people do when I speak about this in public, some people will come up to me afterwards and say, well, I know this rabbi who, uh, who did a really terrible thing to women, or I know this pastor who had an affair. Or, yeah, okay, and so what? You know, and I know a Tesla car that flew into space. Doesn't mean your car can fly. So uh, yeah, it, 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 you, you only need eyes in your head to realize that uh, in general, religion is supportive of family and secularism is hostile to family. Um, it's, it's real, it's, it's tangible. And so I don't have to explore whether a particular uh, producer producing a certain kind of primetime uh, comedy on television or if, if you tell me who he voted for, I'll tell you whether his production is pro-family or anti-family. It's as simple as that. You tell me where he stands on abortion, I'll tell you uh, who he voted for. You tell me uh, whether he believes there should be higher taxes, I'll tell you whether his uh, television comedy is pro-family or anti-family. All of these things are all part of a coherent worldview in each case, and these are two separate, incompatible world, conflicting world views. That's what is going on. And one of them believes that there should be a uh, uh, that, that, that there should be strong families. One believes that it does, it, families aren't important. Families can be whatever you want them to be or nothing at all. Uh, one side believes that people thrive with financial independence. The other side likes to see people carried by the government. They want public dependence. All right, now, you might say, well, nobody's looking for that. Yes, they are looking for that because every single policy promoted by secular socialism is designed to make people less capable of making money themselves and making them more dependent on stimulus packages, handout packages, welfare packages, whatever you want to call it. It's always the same. It's always exactly the same. Yes, it's a war on your finances and it's a war on your family in both, in both those things. In other words, the pol policies will make it harder for you to take care of your family and they will make it harder for you to earn a living. That's the direction in which a socialist or secular leaning administration or authority or culture is going to go. 
And so what do you have to do in order to uh, solve this? Well, that is why I produced for you the free book, The Holistic You. You go to rabbidaniellappin.com and look for it. And you can get it. You just download it for free. It's an ebook. What's The Holistic You? It's explaining how it is that you build all five key areas of your life simultaneously. And so whatever happens, right, I've painted a rather gloomy picture about the future of America. It does look for the moment as if America has become a decline. But as I've explained in an earlier podcast, um, and you can you can go back and, and see it, uh, that, you know, we're saying, do we only have six more years was the name of the podcast. Nonetheless, that doesn't mean that everything falls apart and and uh, peaceful, law-abiding people can no longer live in that country. That's not true at all. I'm not saying that. But I am saying this would be a really good time to build your finances because the the better the shape of your finances, the better you will be able to deal with whatever's coming down the road. You don't need me to tell you that those people who had a year's worth of, of cash in the bank uh, were able to deal with the COVID crisis or the loss of job. They were able to deal with these things much easier than people who were living day to day. And, uh, and that is a reality. It's hard. There's no question about it. Spending is more fun than saving. Spending is more fun than investing. But something I'm sure you listeners, you happy warriors have discovered, and that is that as your nest egg grows, as your savings begin to flourish, that in itself becomes a source of great pleasure and real delight and a source of encouragement that stimulates you to keep doing that and to even to increase it. So it's not just a case of saving, it's a case of increasing revenue so as that the amount you are able to save and invest uh, begins to be significant. And so that's why a very important part of what we teach has to do with finances and a very important part of it has to do with family and a very important part of it has to do with friendships because all of those things interact with one another. And they all play a part in making sure that your life is moving in the right direction and that you have the ability to defeat the resistance that always crops up in the form of people or in the form of invisible forces or in the form of governmental authority. All these things that tend to resist everything good that you are building in your life. You have to have the ability to resist them. You have to have the ability to defeat them. And you do that by building your five Fs. That's as far as we're going to go for today's show, ladies and gentlemen. You happy warriors, thank you for being with me. Thank you for being in touch and letting me know how you're doing at the Contact Us tab at the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Thanks for reading our weekly thought tools, our weekly Susan's musings, and our weekly Ask the Rabbi. Thank you for spreading the word about this podcast, letting people know how to find it. And uh, I really enjoy growing it, and I enjoy watching the numbers grow. That encourages me in the same way that you watching your own numbers grow 
encourages you and fills you with a deep sense of accomplishment, and that brings about a deep sense of happiness. So I wish you that happiness that comes from feeling growth in your relationships with your finances, your relationships with your friendships, your relationships with your family, your relationships with your faith, and with your own body, with your own physical fitness. Until we meet again next week, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.